media ministry of Cornerstone Church. You can listen to this and other messages on our website at www.corner-stone.org or by subscribing to our podcast. As you're seated this morning, you can open your Bibles to Mark chapter 9. Again, I've preached this uh, probably about two years ago, a different context, a little bit different context. We were looking at great prayers of the Bible. I do believe that this is certainly one of those. And this familiar story to some really has a lot of application to us. And I think that when we see the context that it flows in the ministry of Christ, why did this come now as opposed to a year earlier, two years earlier, at the end of the ministry of Christ the last week? There's purpose in every event of the the life of Christ. And I think we begin to really see that this morning as we would see this in the context of the flow that's happening. I want to show you a picture, and I apologize from the very, very beginning that uh, there's no way that the, our screen is going to be able to capture the, the beauty of this painting. It was done by Raphael in the 14th century, and um, it's a, you know, it's pretty big. And in fact, everybody, when they go to the Vatican, they talk about the Sistine Chapel and, you know, the, the work of the great masters and everything. This was probably my favorite part of going to the Vatican when we were in Rome is this picture right here. It was, again, painted in the 14th century, and for about three or 400 years, it was considered to be the best painting ever in all the world. It was just a magnificent one. Uh, it's called uh, the Transfiguration, and it's kind of broken up into two uh, two parts. This was actually the last painting of Raphael. He didn't even get to finish it. Uh, he had like 95% of it finished, and then some of his students had to kind of finish some of the people that are on the sidelines. But really, in totality, what you see there is uh, the transfiguration, what was happening at the top of uh, the mountain with Peter, James, and John. If you notice, they're kind of kind of cowering down because the, the glory of Christ is being revealed. And we have Moses and Elijah on each side. Remember, we talked about that last week, about how they represent the law and the prophets. And so Christ is revealing his glory so that they can kind of say, okay, have faith in what's going to happen in the next three months. Because as he goes to Jerusalem, as he's going to give his life, we know that the disciples are already really struggling over that. They just don't see it. They don't see how that can be victory. And so he reveals himself. Well, Raphael, I I don't know his spiritual standing. I don't know that he was a Christian. I don't know if he was just simply commissioned. Uh, by one of the popes or something to to paint this, but I think that he nails it because at the bottom, if you do, you notice how uh, even in this uh, representation here, how there's light at the top and there's darkness in the bottom. Well, that was very purposeful. The minute you come off the mountain, you go down below. We see what the story that we're looking at today. What happens afterwards? And what was happening below is that while three disciples were on the top of the mountain witnessing the transfiguration of Christ, there were nine below. And they found themselves kind of in a a place of uh, argument, uh, a place of accusation, because a father had come with a sick child, sick son, and they had asked, he had asked them to, to heal him. They've done healing before, and so they tried to heal uh, in Christ's name, and, and they're not able to do that. 
And so they point fingers at one another. Well, it just so happens that the scribes are there, these ones that are already against the ministry of Christ, and they start mocking the ministry of Christ, saying, okay, this proves that his ministry isn't valid. He's not really who he says it is. And so we have on the top all this glory that's being revealed, and then on the right there, you can kind of see how he captures that. And then we go below... And we see all the darkness. Uh, there's the, the sun all the way almost over to the right side there. And if you have a chance today, go look that up on the internet, just Raphael, Transfiguration, and you'll see it in much greater detail. It is a fabulous painting. And I think it captures what's happening here. In fact, does that capture even what kind of goes on in your life sometimes? <laughs> You're going, okay, yes, God, I know that you are God of heaven and earth. I know that you're over all things. And sometimes we have mountaintop experiences. I love what Spurgeon says. He says, we need the mountaintop experiences because so oftentimes we live in valleys. (laughs) And so I think Spurgeon had nailed it that, yeah, we do have some mountaintop experiences where we just see the glory of God revealed in our lives, maybe with uh, miracles that happen physically. Uh, this past week, how many years, Sherry, did you get to celebrate? Ten, Ten years of being cancer-free and, and victory over that. And so this mountaintop experience of just God's healing, when we see it in that way, uh, it reveals itself because has there ever been any valleys after that? <laughs> we know the answer to that. And that's why I think Spurgeon said what he did. We need those times because life so oftentimes it's down in this darkness. But is God the the God of the mountain and the God of the valley? I mean, we just sang that. At least that was the words. Did, did we really believe that? Well, that's what they are really struggling with. Look at Mark chapter 9, starting with verse 14. And when they came to the disciples, that is, Jesus and, and the three, Peter, James, and John, they come off the mountain. They saw a great crowd around them, and scribes arguing with them. And immediately all the crowd, when they saw him, that is, they saw Jesus, were greatly amazed and ran up to him and greeted him. And he asked them, what are you arguing about with them? Now, he knows. I I think that he has knowledge of this, but oftentimes when Jesus asks questions, uh, it's not because he doesn't know. It's because there's a point in the question. And we see the answer, verse 17 and 18. And someone from the crowd answered him, Teacher, I brought my son to you, for he has a spirit that makes him mute. And whenever it seizes him, it throws him down, and he foams and grinds his teeth and becomes rigid. So I asked your disciples to cast it out, and they were not able. Now there's a lot of things that are happening here, and some of these things uh, scholars have had a lot of speculation about over the years. But there's two things that we know without a doubt. <laughs> that the nine disciples tried to cast out this uh, sickness and heal this boy, and uh, they tried and they failed. Nine disciples tried, nine disciples failed. And, and you might be thinking, well, of course, only Jesus is the only one that can really do like miracles and cast out demons. Well, no, don't forget what we learned back in both chapter 3 and in chapter 6, that Jesus gave them authority when they went out two by two. 
And, and they did. They were able to do this in the name of Christ. It's not their own power, but it was their power that, uh, that Christ has extended to them as they proclaim the gospel. Mark chapter 6, 13. And they, that is the disciples, cast out many demons and anointed with oil many who were sick and healed. So it's not that they, this was a brand new experience to them. They were able to do this by the power of God, but in this occasion, they were not able to. And, and so whenever we see something that was, but is not now, it causes us to kind of ask the question, why? And scratch our head. Look at verse 19. Jesus' response to this father that says, okay, I brought my son to them and they weren't able to heal him. Jesus' response. And he answered them, O faithless generation, how long am I to be with you? Now that's a relevant question when we know the rest of the story. He's only going to be there. We're down to the last couple months of the ministry of Christ. And so he sees this lack of faith and he says, oh, faithless generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him to me. We see that the answer, ultimately, the big answer is the lack of faith. And this, again, is where we begin to speculate. Whose lack of faith? But we could make a case of the disciples that somehow they didn't have the faith to heal this son that was brought to them. So we can make that case. We could also say maybe it's the father. We don't really know a lot about his spiritual background. But we do know that he's at least heard of the ministry of Christ. He's heard of healing. And like many other parents in the New Testament with the ministry of Christ, they had tried everything else. And, And would you not go to Christ if you heard whether you had deep spiritual conviction that he truly was the Messiah, or whether you just thought that he was a rabbi that went kind of around town. If you had exhausted every doctor, every home remedy, everything in your capacity, and your child was still sick and afflicted, would you not venture out and try? It doesn't mean that you have faith. It just means at that point, you're just kind of hoping. So it could be the father's faith. It could even be the scribe's that this miracle wasn't done because it, it gave opportunity for them to, to put dark light on the light of Christ, on the ministry of Christ. But notice what happens next. Jesus asked for the boy to be brought to him. And then in verse 20, it says, And they brought the boy to him. And when the Spirit saw him, immediately it convulsed the boy. And he fell on the ground and rolled about, foaming at the mouth. These fits that the boy have were a physical manifestation of the spiritual condition where demons had entered into him. Again, we don't know anything about his spiritual condition. It says that it's been happening since birth. Look at verse 21, 22. And Jesus asked his father, how long has this been happening to him? And he said, from childhood. Now, now, theologically, we are born sinners, but it's not like there was a sin that this boy actively committed in his life and that became a curse to him. No, he's a fallen person in a fallen world, and and so this event has taken place, and, and he now has this condition. Verse 22, And it has often cast him into fire, into water, to destroy him. But if you can do anything, have compassion on us, and help us. This is where we get to the meat of the event. And this is where we see Raphael and other painters painting 
trying to capture this moment. And when we say where Raphael would use so many dark colors in that bottom part of his painting, the father has had to deal with this from the, his son's earliest age. No doctor, no priest, no one had been able to cure his son. And now in final desperation, he comes in what seems to be very weak faith. He comes to Jesus and he asks if he could help. Not if he would, but if he could. No, any of us pious Christians would know. <laughs> you don't ask if God can do something. Maybe you would ask if he would do something, but you know well, we're mature enough in our faith certainly to say, ah, that's the wrong question. And yet we live out in our own lives every day. Can you really fix this marriage? Can you really change a heart? And if you haven't ever struggled with a prodigal, prodigal in your life, especially if that prodigal is a son or a daughter, Guys, in real life, we struggle, not just if God will, but can he sometimes. In the darkness of this world, in the, in the brokenness of this world, there, there are times that in our faith, now that doesn't mean that theologically that God can't, okay? I, I know the answer to this theologically. I'm just talking about in practical. When you get hit time and time and time again with the brokenness of this world, with some a loved one that doesn't want to come to Christ, even though you shared the gospel many times. Believe me, there's times that we really do take this active place and we would ask in a practical way, God, can you do this? Not will you do it, can, can you do this? And we begin to see this real heart of the Father. Uh, in verse 22, we really don't get the capture. Greek words are so much more expressive than our English words that sometimes translate them. But he uses a Greek word there for, for compassion. And the word that he uses there for compassion means to help, to ask for help. It literally means to run with help. If all of a sudden there was a fire, and we had a, a fire over here, the speaker caught on fire, many of you... Uh, maybe not without with compassion, but you would run to help. <laughs> you would go get water, you would do it, and you'd run to help. And that's the word here, but it takes on an emotional tense also. You're running to help with compassion. And that's what the Father asked. Jesus, literally, <laughs> if we kind of use the Greek, Jesus, if you can do something, if you feel my pain, run to my need. Run to my need. And look how Jesus responds to his father. Verse 23. And Jesus said to him, If you can, all things are possible for the one who believes. Now, just a quick show. If you have your Bibles open, I hope you do. Mark 9.23. See that? How many of you have, at that point when it says, uh, Jesus says, If you can, it has a question mark. Okay, several. How many of you have an exclamation point? I thought question marks and exclamation points were quite different. <laughs> and they are. And, and yet, scholars have looked at this, and we don't know. We, we weren't there. And, and yes, we trust the inspiration of the Holy Bible, and yet it's one of those things scholars have really been kind of baffled 
Is Jesus saying, if you can? And then he goes on to respond, all things are possible for one who believes. And so you have really good trusted translations. And some of those translations put a question mark. Others put an exclamation point that Jesus is making a statement. I believe that both fit. I really believe that he's asking in a way that this questioning heart of the Father, but he's also making a point that I'm the very Son of God. I can do all things. Both fit well in this text. I don't know that either one is inappropriate, but, but here's the point of that. How many times in our own life do we take something that God has said an explanation point and he says, I can. And yet in our way of asking, in our way of faith, in our struggling in this darkness below, that, that, that we actually kind of put a question mark there. Both of these fit. And Jesus corrects the Father faith by pointing out that God can do anything. But he also directs the Father's heart by reminding him of the object of his faith. So oftentimes, God reveals himself, not just uh, in a way of an answer, but he's maturing us. And so sometimes a lack of an answer is so that there's more uh, maturing that takes place. We got the word this week that uh, my, my youngest daughter, who we're expecting our third grandchild, and she had to go to the hospital for, for a little while, and we thought maybe she was going to deliver about a, a month early. They were able to kind of um, stave that off a little bit, but she'll go back to the doctor tomorrow. We're trying to make it to next week because every day is more maturity for that developing child. In the doctor's wisdom, I mean, he actually could have delivered Brody last Thursday or Friday, but in the doctor's wisdom, going, you know, if we can get three more days, if we can get seven more days, that would be great. What, what is the doctor's interest? Maturity. Maturity. Well, what is Jesus, what is God's interest in our lives when we don't have a sudden answer to a quick prayer? Even if it's a desperate need. I, I really believe it's Maturity. That ability to trust him more and more. But not just with the answer, but but the person of Christ. And I really believe that's the whole key to this passage. Folks, faith itself, even though that's what Jesus points to, we, we have to see where he's directing that faith. He's directing that faith to Christ, the person of Christ, but also the purposes of Christ. What are the disciples struggling with? The person of Christ? Well, you could say, no, they really believe that he's the Messiah. Remember what Peter said? Thou art the Christ. They're not struggling so much with the per- person of Christ, but who that purpose, uh, the, the purpose of that person. Does that make sense? Sometimes we can kind of trust that purpose, but then we wonder, why in the world did they do that? I mean, did you ever question your mother or father when you were growing up? I'm sure all of you can say no. Maybe You trusted that they loved you, even though I don't think you love me. You know, we've all kind of used that before, but you know, you trust that they loved you, but you did not have a clue of their purpose for saying yes or no to these things. What do you think now, looking back, that you're perhaps a parent or even a grandparent, that their purpose was maturity? No, I just want to kill all your fun. That's my job. I'm a parent. 
<laughs> You're not to have any fun. <laughs> no, maturity. And so this is the real struggle with the disciples. They believe who the person of Christ is. Thou art the Christ, the son of the living God, was the proclamation of Peter. They have the person, right? But they don't understand in this person all the purposes that come with that. Folks, I even believe that maybe they were just trusting a process too. Hey, in the past, we've been able to just cast out these demons by just saying these things and kind of following this formula. And, and folks, it's not about a process, it's about a person. A process didn't die on the cross, a person did. A religious act isn't the, the, you know, the means to, to, to get God to do what you want him to do. Notice the fact that Christ has risen from the dead and he's given us victory over sin, death, and the grave. When we begin to understand that, when we begin to really see the purposes of God, we can begin to see where Christ would say, oh, you faithless generation. Even at a time when many said, you are the Messiah, you're, you're the Savior. I believe this, this is where the, all the nine disciples failed, is that they just had kind of too much of a distance between the person of Christ and, yes, you are the Messiah, but why are you doing these things in the way that you're doing? To me, that's everything. When we trust the person of Christ, what we're trusting is the perfections of Christ. What we're trusting is the power of Christ. We're trusting that he's always working for God's glory and for our good. There was a lot of things that we did to our two girls for their good that I don't know that in those years of of adolescence that they ever got. But they're starting to get them now. (laughs) I don't know how many times they've already called up, hey mom, You know, even at one and two years old, what do we do? This child is untamable. <laughs> we say no, and they keep on doing it. What do you do? <laughs> is this not the story of our spiritual lives? Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. I would think that most people in here this morning, that that is the proclamation of your heart. And yet understand that when you say that, when you proclaim that, the depth of that, the depth of that is the purposes of Christ. And those purposes, again, are his glory and our maturity. We're on a learning curve, folks, in all those areas, perhaps not theologically, but certainly in a very practical way. So what does the father do? How does he respond when Jesus begins to to say that if you can, all things are possible, the one who believes. And so my favorite verse, and perhaps all of Mark, Mark 9, 24. Immediately, Mark's favorite word, immediately the father of the child cried out and said, I believe, help my unbelief. I believe that you can do all things. I believe perhaps that you are the son of the living God. I believe perhaps that you, that you are. I mean, I'm saying perhaps, not because he's saying perhaps, but because 
I don't know what his spiritual condition is. But there's something that he's making proclamation, I believe these things. In the same way that in our own lives, we would make a proclamation, I believe these things. I guarantee if I sat down with you this morning, the very fact that you're here this morning, you believe something. You believe something about this God of the Bible. You believe something about this one who we call the Messiah of the world. And yet it's not the fullness of the prayer. I believe, help my unbelief. And both of these are directed directly at Jesus. What happens, verse 25, And when Jesus saw the crowd came running together, he rebuked the unclean spirit, saying to it, You mute and deaf spirit, I command you, come out of him and never enter him again. Verse 26, And after crying out and convulsing him terribly, it came out, and the boy was like a corpse, so that most of them said he's dead. He was just lying there, lifeless. Jesus actually goes over there, and in verse 26, he, he, or, and then finally he, he picks him up and uh, to this lifely, uh, lifeless body and he stands him up. It's the same word that's going to be used in the Greek, speaking of the resurrection of Christ. Again, Jesus pointing to the cross and to the empty tomb. And, and you would say, well, everything ended well. Father's happy because his son now is cured. The disciples are happy going, man. I'm glad you showed up, Jesus. The only ones that are probably not happy right now are the scribes. Because they thought maybe they had Jesus on this one. Hey, look. You know, you're not the authentic Messiah because you weren't able to do this miracle. But everybody else is happy. But then it, there's the rest of the story. Verse 28 29. And when he had entered the house... His disciples asked him privately, why could we not cast it out? And Jesus said to them, this kind of, this kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. Now what does Jesus mean by that? I thought it was faith. I thought faith was the real struggle here. Think about it in the most practical of ways, guys. Is not prayer one of the most extreme exercises of faith. I mean, when we pray, the measure of our faith in that prayer truly, I mean, what's kind of, you say, could be measured is, is how much faith we have. I would even challenge this, and this is pretty convicting to myself, that the more faith we have, the more prayer we're going to have in our lives. I think we can make a direct correlation between our prayer life and our faith life. Not our theological belief life. Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. We know the answers, but in the most practical of ways, look at the connection that Jesus is making. He says, this is only done by prayer. Now, what does he mean? That you have to be like this master prayer? You have to have these magical words? You have to throw in a couple hallelujahs and a couple praise gods there? No, that's not. He's making connection, faith. And now he says prayer. And faith and prayer, in a most practical way, are an integrated part of our life. I promise you, the more that we would have faith, the more we're going to pray. Not the less. 
I'm just giving it all to God. I don't even have to pray about it, but I'm just giving it to God. And I think as people of great faith that we're going to be continuing in prayer. Let me ask you this morning. As one who believes in the God of the mountains, and yet one who has to live in the valley oftentimes below, well, what is the struggle that you would have in your own life. It's easy to look at this father and it's easy to, to point him out and see the struggle that he had. I, I think every one of us would react like he did. Whether this was the one last hope that he comes. But, but where would you best reflect that prayer in your own personal life this morning? I believe that as you have some theological knowledge, you, 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 you really do believe And yet at the moment, because of the darkness of life below, I'm getting battered up with some unbelief. I believe. But I'm really struggling with some unbelief. I I know the right answers, and I know that God is able, and and I know know all those things. And, And yet as I walk this darkness, it feels like I'm getting punched. I would suggest for you this morning a simple prayer. From the heart, from the mind, and from all that is within you. To cry out to this compassionate God and to cry out in the same way that this father did. Again, we don't see it revealed in the English translation, but it's there in the Greek. Oh, compassionate God, run to my side and help me. Run with help. Run with help. I believe. Help my unbelief. What a beautiful prayer. And what I would say this morning, what a practical prayer. Not doubting the light of the glory of God, but having to live in a moment of present darkness. Or sometimes, not saying that he doesn't shine his light from time to time, he does so in glorious ways. And yet much of our life is here in this brokenness, in this darkness of the world. That doesn't leave us without hope or help. I believe. God, will you help my unbelief? Let's pray. Father, we love you and we thank you this morning, Father. We thank you for the honest prayers of this Father. Well, we, we don't know his spiritual background, but we know his desperate need. And Father, in that desperate need... Father, even if he was an infant in that belief, Father, what a great prayer. Father, what a great promise that that he, he came to you. Where he looked at your greatness and Father, Christ responded and brought healing. Not just for the moment, but it says, so that that demon would never enter him again. Father, thank you for mountaintop experiences. Thank you for answered prayers. Thank you for 10 years of being cancer-free for people. Thank you for those great, great things. And yet, Father, this morning, we do pray in such a practical way of our faith. Father, as we live here in the darkness, help our unbelief. Help those days when, when our hearts are saddened. Help those days when doubt creeps in. 
For Father, you are the source not only of that victory, but Father, you are the source of faith. So Father, today help us to believe not just in the person of Christ, but the purposes of Christ. Work those purposes of our maturity, Father, and help us to trust in you implicitly. What a great God you are. What a great, great God you are. And so, Father, today we we end with this song, just a a reflection of our hearts and our, our minds today. And we sing of your greatness, Father. We love you and we thank you as we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you for listening today. We hope this message was a blessing to you. To learn more about our church or our media ministry, you can visit us online at www.corner-stone.org or find us on Facebook.